You are now listening to the Messed Up series. Okay, hello everyone. It's good to see some new faces as well. Well, new names uh, for obvious reasons. Um, to these third third time we have the Messed Up seminars. So first of all, um, I would like to introduce it to the new people. The Messed Up seminars was a uh, idea from our PhD society in the Security and Crime Science. Uh, department, amazing idea um, about uh, trying and talk about the things that can go wrong. Oftentimes during our PhD, as well as during the job, um, when we continue, maybe even as academics like me uh, um, or Paul as our guest today, um, we often only look at what we have done and what we have achieved. But oftentimes we learn a lot more from failure. Therefore, we are interested in talking about the things that can go wrong. Uh, this was an amazing idea and uh, it's an amazing effort. I want to uh, highlight that from PhD students that asked me to uh, help as a co-host. Um, uh, it's even four people of them and uh, three of them are actually just working all the time with us in sync from the background. And it's really to appreciate. So I prefer to uh, nominate that out loud. We have Martin, Juliana, Ire, and Someya uh, that are doing an amazing job in this organization. Moreover, today is Someya's Someya's birthday, so happy birthday, Someya! Thank you very much. She's our uh, host. Me and her uh, co-host these uh, these sessions. Uh, today, our guest is the only and amazing Paul Gill, and as usual, um, we'll uh, talk about him by starting with sharing the meme he has chosen for today's topic. So today's topic is about fundings and uh, uh, I'll just enlarge it, not too much though. Uh, today's topic is about fundings and applying for fundings. So uh, Paul has chosen uh, this meme from uh, uh, the Lord of the Rings, pretty famous one. One does not simply acquire fundings for the research project. Please, at any time, send questions in the chat and uh, we'll relay them to the speakers. So uh, please do send them. We have uh, Juliana and Ray that always ping us about the questions that are in the chat. So do not hesitate for any question you have. Paul, welcome to uh, our session. Uh, welcome. Pleased to have you as a guest. A uh, great expert in terrorism, in particular, the lone wolf, uh, as called by the media, lone actor, as called by technical people, um, lone actor terrorism. And, uh, we are amazed to have you here. Great experience. And uh, this is the topic you have chosen. This is the meme. So please tell us more about why you have chosen this meme. Well, I think that just from experience, I, I've, I get a lot of... Um, applications to sort of join the research group as a postdoc or I get a lot of interest from prospective PhD students and often they sort of say things in their application materials about you know I've got this really bright research project somebody's going to fund it and then when you sort of push them a little bit further around well you know how long do you think it's going to take what's the type of funding you're going to need have you considered you know, the different sort of indirect costs that are going to be associated, who are the funders. There's a whole sort of system that is behind that kind of one line on somebody's CV that you don't often sort of get that training as a, as a PhD. I was sort of really lucky to have worked as a postdoc in a very sort of research intensive research center where bringing in research grants was the sort of the day job, you know, because basically everybody's job apart from the directors was on soft money. So if we stopped bringing in research grant income, I would lose my job. The PA would lose, the PA to the director would lose his job. The finance director would lose the job, the business development manager. So I sort of got a really good training in this kind of the whole system and processes that are behind how to pull a research project together and get it funded which is a really different sort of set of processes than maybe getting funding for your PhD scholarship, which is often, you know, quite straightforward because 
the, the amount is stipulated ahead of time, the sort of time frames are stipulated ahead of time, and it's just a sort of simple upload of a research idea. Whereas when you're sort of moving into that kind of postdoc territory, often there's a lot more kind of uh, part gears in the system that you need to be able to grease to get your way through to sort of submit that application on time. Um, and, and I think that that's often what is kind of overlooked when people have aspirations of getting research funding. That is a great introduction to the topic, Paul, and thanks a lot uh, for this. So uh, while obviously if anyone has questions can uh, continue giving, uh, sending them to the chat as uh, we said earlier, we can actually start asking you a couple of the questions we thought about. As funding is something that uh, many times PhD think about as if they have to apply immediately as soon as they are in the PhD, for instance, or as you said, the question of when we get to the, the postdoc territory that also for me, uh, that I'm pretty young in the, in the job, although passed already on the other side of the desk, it's something that, yeah, can, can be a new word, completely new word. <laughs> so, Exactly because of this, um, I'd say. So basically, like you've, as you said, like um, Enrico is, um, you you've just you've just moved to the other side of the desk. We are still students, and I guess there's no such course that we can attend that teaches us as as Paul um, introduced. Like um, you just get thrown in it, right? So there's no one who prepares us for applications of funding. You just gain experience as you move forward. And um, I think like um, the difficulties and um, getting and sustaining a funding is, is a perennial uh, obstacle, I think. And you just gain experience as you move forward. But how, how can we stumble upon difficulties? What, what are the difficulties we might face? Let's talk about maybe in the beginning of securing a funding. Well, first of all, you have to be aware of what opportunities are out there for funding. So, you know, there's going to be, you know, big funders that you might be well aware of, like your sort of big research council funding endeavors. The sort of problem with those types of funding and streams is that everybody knows about them. So there's tons of competition. A lot of their calls are sort of quite open, right? So right now we're involved in putting together a bid for a ESRC open centers call. So it could be on any topic as long as it falls within the ESRC radar. Could be on any subject, any method, anything, right? So it's kind of wide open. So you're up against absolutely everybody. So oh. your chances of success are kind of diminished just because of that. Or some of those research council calls are on such a specific topic that there's going to be a very narrow amount of people, but everybody that is in that narrow field will go for it, right? So you kind of, the bids that are general and open and full of numbers, and then there's more kind of tightly defined bids, but you're guaranteed you're going to be up against all of the sort of best names in your field. So differentiating yourself from those other people or sort of playing kind of politics with them and splitting bids and going in together there's a lot of that on those sort of specific ones there's a lot of kind of chess moving the pieces on the chessboard at those early stages of when that call is, is announced because you don't want to be sort of too open and too forward that you're definitely going ahead because then you don't want to incentivize others you want some people to sort of maybe try and bring you into their bid there's a whole kind of smoke and mirrors politics to it that really you only get a great sense of when you start to become more established in the field. And so sort of knowing and getting yourself embedded in those networks during your PhD is a sort of a, is a good place to be when those specific calls come in. But then there's often these other kind of streams of research income that you sort of need to go out and almost find yourself, right? So for example, just before Christmas, uh, there's a there's a contracts portal which the home office runs. So every contract that the home office goes into that's worth above ten thousand pounds has to be publicly advertised. 
unless you're a friend of the Conservative Party. But that's another that's a discussion for another day. And there was a bid that, and I just went on it one day during a meeting, a little bit bored in the general staff meeting, and just typed in the words. I think it was just something general like research. And there was a call had been announced that day on domestic abuse perpetrator research. So that was one that sort of hasn't been signposted to us by research services. It hasn't been signposted to us by any of our partners or anything else. It was just on a kind of a corner of a contract portal that the vast majority of academics will overlook. So again, one of your other challenges is basically putting yourself in the right website to sort of get a, an eye on where these opportunities emerge. Twitter is another one where you see, you know, industry or charitable foundations advertise what they're going to do. And kind of and another way of doing it is sort of when you found yourself embedded in a university is, is try to get to know who your research services are and for them to know who you are and what your research specialties are because it's their job is to be scanning this kind of this environment for opportunities so if you kind of place something in their ear to say this is the type of research i'm doing they'll think of you and send it your way so a lot of it is just about building networks being actively looking all the time for these opportunities in the same way, if you're on the job market, you're actively on certain websites. If you're in the market for research grants, it's what you need to do. And then again, sort of slowly as you become, and I've got very lucky with this in the last year or so. You know, when I was kind of started my postdoc in January 2010, we did a lot of work presenting to practitioner communities and sort of building up your your profile in those spaces. But what I find now is that the lads that were junior practitioners when I started as a junior postdoc, they're now quite senior decision makers with mm-hmm. you know, funding allocation at their fingertips. So I, what I often see postdocs and junior career researchers do wrong is they just go for the most senior person in the room and it sort of shines, it just shows that you're kind of you're being completely and utterly opportunistic in your networking. But if you're going into it just for, you know, building um, a sort of impact, you, you need to be uh, networking with people at every corner of an organization. You can't sort of pick and choose saying, he's really important to me right now, so therefore I need to be on their radar because they'll have a sort of a queue around the corner of 30 academics trying to talk to them. So I often just sort of hung back at the back of the room and went to beers with sort of junior staff, just on a sort of personal level, having somebody to hang out with at workshops and conferences. But now these people are sort of decision makers and we're getting grant opportunities that aren't being publicly advertised. They're just sort of seeing opportunities that they think we would be suitable for and are sort of sharing those kind of opportunities with us. So there's a whole kind of like a lot of it is just basically embedding yourself in a network and being in the places where you'll spot opportunities coming downstream. Um, so that, that's that's one big task. And then another one is, is the sort of the financial side of it. Um, it, it. And it hugely differs from institution to institution in terms of how it work, how it operates, the timelines it takes. And. Um, Again, you have to sort of build those relationships with the people that will be putting together your budgets. You have to sort of signpost stuff way ahead of time. You can't be sort of dropping in at them the day before the deadline. Like me as an academic, I, I like deadlines because I'll typically do the work the day before the deadline, right? So if you, if you ask me to do something for you, if you ask me to do a chapter for you for Friday, I'll get it done. If you ask me to do it for mid-November, I'll do it on the Friday before the mid-November, right? Whereas the sort of administrative side of things and the financial and the budgeting, they have a sort of very different personality constructs and different sets of pressures. So again, you need to kind of come to them as early as possible to say, right, the funder wants all this stuff by the 1st of February. When do you need it by so that we can get all the systems going? So... Again, sort of going back to that meme, 
you can have all of the best research ideas in the world. You can have the best science case, but if you don't have really good integral sort of project management skills, you're not going to get to that point of submitting the proposal because there's more than just you, you that you need to corral and, and sort of get working towards it. And like on a sort of very personal level, you know, you need to have a lot of human touch with people. Academics, some academics aren't great at the human touch side of things and can quite easily annoy people. And quite often you find that their research projects, plans get stuck in the gears because other people are prioritized because they just simply put the request across a lot nicer, right? Um, so you kind of have this weird thing in academia where PH, successful PhDs that want to go on and do an academic career and get an academic career, they've got to that point because they're really, really good at working in a silo by themselves, self-driven. And then all of a sudden they get their academic job and now all of a sudden it's much more about working in teams, working, managing upwards, managing downwards. And maybe, you know, a lot of people need to develop those types of human, you know, management skills and, and interpersonal skills, because that will all feed into your successful ability to get a grant under consideration. Well, uh, can I ask you a question? Oh, one second. A uh, uh, very small point. Um, you mentioned that uh, they get announced on different portals and we have to find the portals and know where exactly our interest um, of funding uh, lies. And my only like very small question, do they get uh, announced enough time before the deadline? Do they give this chance or is it just like you have to submit them on the time? You have to be prepared for... Uh, submitting yeah. proposals all the time how so, does it work yeah so this is um this is something again where sort of knowing the politics behind something is is really really key and um, at this time of year you'll see lots of government short-term three-month projects being announced with a very tight turnaround time so it could oh. be something as tight as you know a week or two weeks between the moment it went online and the moment you need to submit. And that's simply because government departments have a budget that runs from the 4th of April to the 3rd of April, and they need to spend all of that budget by the end of financial year. Okay. Risk giving it back or risk not getting the same amount the following year. So they have a pressure to go out and spend, spend, spend towards the end. So it's around this time of year, you might be sort of looking for those kind of home office portal opportunities that's a good tip yeah. guys chop chop prepare your proposals exactly. <laughs> sort of ready and willing to drop things very very quickly so right now there's there's one that was advertised that is a pretty quick turnaround time it's not a research grant but it's, it's funding to fund like hundreds of students to go through a particular sort of professional qualification program so it will be an absolute pain to put that bid together because it is a short turnaround time. But the other thing that we have to consider is, is there somebody already chosen for this? And are they making it such a tight turnaround time because they know that chosen person is ready with all of the documents? So you have to sort of do a bit of a horizon scanning to see who are the sort of main competitors. Are they in a place now that it won't be too much of a work for them because they've already done it. But for example, we won last year a bit of money from the Home Office and, and National Crime Agency to do a phase one of a piece of research. And then we recommended a, a, a series of steps at the end of our project. So then they put up another uh, funding call, which basically cut and paste all of our recommendations saying, we want to fund this for another year. These are the steps you need to do. And basically, you have to register your interest. Loads of people registered their interest to bid, bid for it. And then as part of registering it, they saw our first phase report. So instantly they went, oh, okay, this is just written for them. This isn't worth our time sort of competing against. So again, trying to sort of get a lay of the land and an understanding of what all of your sort of rival research groups and institutions are doing. 
is really, really key. But then there are these other ones which are, you can almost set your watch by that every year on a certain month, that call will come in. And they're generally the sort of the more open calls. So right now I'm funded by the European Research Council. We are three years. We've just finished our third year, two more years to go. There is another grant opportunity that I can go for, which will start the day after that project ends. I know that that opportunity is going to be advertised in November. Okay. So we're okay. already starting to sort of get our research plans together to be ready to make that bid. You know, because you have experience in this field and you're exposed. And every year. Every okay. Year, okay. It's that. repetitive. Yeah. Okay. It's, I'm, I'm very, I'm very, um, not surprised. I would say, um, um, I can see that it, it's not just you apply for funding and you get it. Like these are like really good tips that you're giving us. I was clueless that it works this way. Yeah. And then, and you know, the other thing is when I'm planning out my year, I need to be, I need to know that I have my October clear this year so that mm. I can sort of get all of that research in and done. So I need to be sort of planning when my PhD students are submitting to make sure that I have capacity to be able to, to, to do my job on that front. I need to not have other projects to finish that month. So I'm sort of, you know, moving all of my current demands and certain promises I've made to people around to kind of keep that block clear. So a lot of it is just pure, simple organization of skills that goes into being in a good place to go for these things. You always get the funding you apply for. Have you ever been rejected? No. no, no? Tell no. us more about that. Um, so I suppose, uh, so I've got this ERC one, right? Right now, this European Research Council one, which was mm -hmm. an open call to all people who want to do a five-year project in a European university. UK universities are still considered European, uh, thankfully. Um, the, but, but you have to have finished your PhD within two to seven years. So it was aimed at early career researchers, right? So when I was finishing my PhD, actually, there was a guy, this kind of lecturer in my home university who got one. And then he advertised this, these sets of five-year postdocs to work on his project. Postdoc was going to start like two weeks after my PhD was submitted. And I was thinking, this is perfect. This is like my ideal job. Don't have to move city. It's five years to build a research profile and then go get a lectureship. And I didn't get it, right? Like I, I wasn't successful in it. Got quite bitter about it. But really, if I think back on it, you know, my the research proposal that I put in, like it was my research proposal that I thought was really, really important. And I didn't do enough kind of background research on what his project was aiming to do and the scope and things like that. So that was that was a failure of a job application. But when I didn't get it, I kind of put it in my head. I want one of these ERC grants. So I'm going to sort of work towards getting this. So when I was, and the thing about those ERC grants is they have different phases. So you submit two kind of proposals. One's a five page, one's a 15 page. You submit them simultaneously. And on round one, they only look at your five pager. And if you get through, they look at your 15 pager. But if you don't get through round one, you can't apply next year. Right, because they're trying oh. to basically keep the numbers down and keep the measures away. So five years after I got my PhD, I went for it, got to phase one, got rejected. So I couldn't go for it in my sixth year. And I did that intentionally. Like I applied for it in year five intentionally because I knew the chances were against me getting through. So I wanted to have I wanted to have a kind of a, a run at it just to see what the process is like got really good feedback from I think six different peer reviewers who who gave different ideas about where I could be strengthened took the year out obviously because I couldn't apply next year and went for it in my final year that I was eligible and got it in that and I only got it because I was unsuccessful two years beforehand and like there was a lot of like little small things that I took for granted 
as a subject matter expert in that topic that I hadn't been considering for the sort of more general expertise that are your peer reviewers. So that's another sort of roll of the dice is you don't know who your peer reviewers are going to be. You could be a, you know, crime scientist and end up with a reviewer who is a sort of a critical school criminology type, right? Mm. Who does, who sees sort of doing things that will make the police do their job as being completely antithetical to their sort of belief system, right? So you don't know who you're going to get, or you could end up with a mathematician who sort of takes for granted that, you know, forensic science is way above where it actually is, right? Like, mm -hmm. so again, you sort of need to think about who are the types of reviewers you're going to, you'll be speaking to. So you need, you need things like definitions, which I would sort of take for granted. If it was a terrorism only call and terrorism only reviewers, there's things I can take for granted. Whereas if it's more general, those little things or failure i mean it's called failure it's not really failure because you won't succeed more than you will succeed but yeah missing out on it that year was what sparked it for year seven the yes. year i did get it and one of those simple things was like like the one the reviewer said there's you know six different work packages here but they don't tie together i don't see how they tie together and it was clear in my head how they tied together. So for the next bid, what I did was just a simple figure graphic, which had arrows between the work packages. Didn't make any sense, but it sort of demonstrated how one built on the other, built on the other. And then none of the reviewers had any comments about the structure between them, even though the work packages were basically the same. So, so it's yeah. a balance between what you are interested in to achieve from this funding, what they are interested in to offer and they want you to achieve, and then knowing how to connect these two together in the application, make it clear for them. Exactly. And also wanting to do that, because the worst thing you can do is put a proposal together that you think will be successful, but ultimately you don't really want to do. Mm -hmm. And you're stuck with this thing for like a year, two years. And then it's just a pain. And, and I, I worked on big projects. Uh, how can I say this without giving it away? I've worked on a project where we had partners from other universities. And in the first meeting, they were complaining about the type of work they had to do on the project. And you're mm -hmm. kind of thinking, well, why did you sign up to this in the first place, right? It isn't, the end isn't getting money in the door. The end is, the research and findings that you generate at the end of this. So, you know, you got to look at funding as a means to an end rather than the end in and of itself. So there might be projects which you think are good, but or, or proposals which are good, but it might mean doing certain types of work that you're just not really interested in or managing. So, you know, you need to have enthusiasm for what you're doing as well and, and not sort of seed too much. There is a question from Sarah, actually, I was also thinking um, when you mentioned about the generic uh, funding in the beginning and you know that you're competing against the uh, monsters of your field, maybe. Um, what, are, what are the best practices or tips that you can give us that will make our applications stand out when we are competing with experts in our field for that funding? Yeah, this is definitely something that I'm kind of trying to, um, that I'm sort of actively conscious of right now. So when, when I was starting off as a postdoc and then starting off at UCL, me and the research team sort of took on this kind of persona that we were sort of insurgents in the field, right? We were sort of the young guns that were sort of coming in to take over. So we felt that a lot of this sort of mainstream giants in our field had become a little bit stale in how they were doing things. So we could sell ourselves as people that could systematically collect certain types of data and be able to analyze it in certain ways. And, and what you're looking for is a unique selling point, right? And mm. for a long time, that was our unique selling point was that we had systems to collect data or access to sensitive data that we were sort of better trained as methodologists than a lot of the established names. And then increasingly, obviously, when, when I moved to JDI, 
a lot of your unique selling point is the fact that you're doing problem-oriented research with a focus on impact. It isn't just knowledge generation for the sake of it. Now, the sort of problem for me is, as a sort of a more established name now, a lot of your time that's taken up in, you know, checking the budgets of your project and sorting out contracts and making sure that people get their mat leave payments on time and stuff like that, Time that isn't spent being at the forefront of reading every single scientific paper that is emerging, right? So I definitely don't have as much of an immersive knowledge of what has come out in the last four years as I had 40 years prior to that, right? Because my time gets eaten up and often what falls away is reading. So like, look at it look at that as an opportunity as a sort of a as an emerging phd student you should be in terms of your knowledge of the field way ahead of a lot of those kind of older and more established names so it's about sort of trying to find that unique selling point and then getting a reputation for it and then sort of building that up like again not to sort of as you said um, exposure right if i am you, you are like you are as a researcher like a brand right and and you sort of get known for doing certain types of things like i've sometimes i've been in at conferences and you i saw this uh, phd researcher give a talk and she published a couple of papers that i was really interested in and i was kind of interested to see her present her stuff and maybe with a view to trying to sort of say well you know Let's try and put some bids together and get you in as a as a postdoc or whatever. And and she got up and and I know there was funders in the room. She got up and she started her presentation, saying like, "Oh, I don't really want to do this. Like, I kind of like I'm a little bit hungover. Uh, you know, the results aren't even that exciting." Blah, blah, blah. And you're sort of there going, "Oh my god!" Like every sort of public thing you do is a sort of a mm-hmm. job interview that you're not really aware of. You don't know. And this is definitely true for being in London and for doing stuff that's problem oriented. You will often have government people, police people, intelligence in a room, and you're unaware of it. Mm. So I like how you put it that you are these brand. As a researcher, you are a brand. Like uh, I never yeah. thought of it this way. I mean, it, it's true, right? And like. Enrico? sort of social media persona if, if you're pushing out professional stuff about your career and about your papers and stuff like that but then also tweeting and so you've got people from your profession following you you sort of need to be careful about what else you're sort of tweeting because they're picking up little fragments about what type of person you are if you're giving out about having to work um, but I stop you on these. I would like, like actually to do a step back, also inspired by what you said, but also to answer the first question that was done uh, by Sarah, as there were two in that case. Well, first of all, it's in science. I'm not sure if it happens also in other fields, but um, if you uh, if you are like a last year PhD and you are presenting at the conference in computer science, actually you can say to the chair of the session, and they would say it at the beginning when presenting you. So to say that you are on the market for possible postdocs and can actually be useful in terms of, uh, as, uh, as Paul said, there's people in the audience that may be interested mm-hmm. in looking for you and interacting with you because of your work. Uh, it happens in computer science. I'm not sure if it happens in other fields uh, that can be answered by others. But also, um, Sarah was, uh, was asking, UCL has a funding search uh, tool but is, is that a good tool? Do, would you suggest other tools to use literally on the technical bits of the first step, where to find the calls? What could be the best approach? They where use to look? Tool or other search tools or talking straight to people that are in the field? Yeah, so, I mean, just as, as a sort of a step one, just learning the names of all the research councils, be it European or UK, and just basically getting on their email lists or... So when new opportunities emerge, you get it sent to you. There's another thing that UCL has access to called researchprofessional.com. You've got through your UCL credentials, you can have access to it. And again, you can set sort of keywords and it will send you every notification that comes through. There's the UCL portal. Um, And the other thing is, you know, 
when you're sort of, if you're at the PhD stage and you're doing your lit review, obviously you're sort of concentrating on what the results of the papers are, but also have a look at that sort of first footnote to say this research was funded by, oh. then you'll sort of get an idea of where the other kind of bits and pieces are. If you start at a new university as a postdoc or as a, as a sort of a lecturer, have a look around your own departments and other departments to see who are the people that are generating research income and go have a chat with them to see what are the processes they go through to try and, to try and, and get the funding. When we worked in America, it was a really different sort of system where we would pitch project ideas straight to government departments. So we would often be writing these kind of what we called white papers, but they were usually five pages long and would just basically be about an idea and what we would do to sort of solve that problem. And some of them would just go into the ether and you'd never hear about them again. And then sometimes they'd come back and say, okay, I found, you know, $600,000. Do you think you'd be able to do it? So culturally, it really depends on where you, where you end up. And, you know, we're very lucky at UCL in that it's a research intensive university. So all of those systems are in place to help you but you could end up at a University of East London and there is no research services department. And, you know, we, we put a bid in with uh, one particular university before. They had nobody to put the budget together. They were locked out of their budgeting software and they had to go find somebody that had left the university six years beforehand to get the password. Oh. So... <laughs> Uh, so again, a lot of it is about learning the systems in the place you end up in. Um, Bo, before going to Patricia's question, because that's just on the other hand, on the other end of the process, um, I wanted to ask you if you have ever had and what you have done to make better um, a situation like the one I had well, a year and a half ago, more or less. Um, I went to uh, well, a very interesting event. There I exchanged uh, cards with uh, people, including one, uh, including a person from a big company. Now we know that most of the times these cards basically get lost. But this person wrote me the day after in order to have a chat for possible uh, funding talks with uh, with me for UCL in the information security group. And uh, so I actually went like a week later to their uh, their company. So for that reason, I preferred not to be with the t-shirt, but actually being properly with a suit and everything. And uh, what actually happened was that I got there. Um, I was waiting by the guy at the reception and uh, the one of the three people that actually would have talked to me arrived. And uh, she looked at me and then looked back to the reception person. I was, um, we have an appointment with a person from UCL. Do you know if this person arrived to the building? Now, um, then she recovered by saying very nice suit, but aside that, um, I tried as a solution to make me grow a well-defined beard, but I'm not sure this worked. Did you have any, um, any other kind of suggestion on how to be a point on the map, actually, how to be recognizable on the map in these type of situations? It's all about your work. It's all about your work. Oh. And, and to be honest with you, if, if people are judging you by how you look, they're probably mm. not who you want to work with. So it's and it goes back to you being as a researcher. I really like how you put it. You're, you're like, you have to handle yourself like a brand, right? Yeah, you have to push yourself. Uh, yeah. And, and listen, my brand isn't turning up in a suit and looking sharp every single day. Right? Far from it. I became an academic, so I'd never have to wear a suit. <laughs> so, Lucky us. <laughs> so, but what the focus on, on that sort of brand needs to be is, like for us, it's problem-oriented research, doing it in the sort of most sophisticated robust designs we can do, and communicating that research on time, on cost, and in a way that can be translated to a load of different audiences. So when you get research grants in the door, obviously, if you're looking for career progression, you need journal articles, you need to build out your CV. 
But if you're looking for impact, you need to also write those papers as one pagers that the home office, the, the sort of home secretary can read, that the, you know, uh, that civil servants have time to read and that it's digestible in a format that isn't all sort of scientific, right? I think a lot of people get a little bit too caught up with, you know, what they look like or how they present themselves. I, I kind of, I instantly, and that's probably a weakness of mine, have a little bit of a, I know myself, when I, when I was teaching lectures and there was a topic that I knew inside out, I know that I could lecture in a hoodie and jeans and trainers and be fine. If it was a topic that I was a little bit unsure of, I'd make sure to look a little bit sharper that day because you're sort of like a little bit of a trade-off, right? Mm. So, and Paul, sorry to stop you, just, uh, it's just that we are a bit tight on timings and uh, I wanted to go through also uh, Patricia's, um, Patricia's question. Um, we all know, uh, and you said it clearly, and that is really uh, important, many beads don't go through. Oftentimes at the beginning is like a, a stronger percentage, much stronger percentage, those that do not go through. And sometimes it's actually a good strategy to make a bead uh, first to have an idea. But in some cases, I had one recently, uh, and uh, Patricia is asking this, some funders don't provide, provide feedback. Um, how can we improve a bid that has been rejected and we don't really have a feedback or the feedback is not that useful uh, also as it happens in some other cases? Like what went wrong? You have no idea what went wrong. Yeah, so, so some places you just w will not hear anything back and, and usually that's a byproduct of just the volume of applications that they receive, that there's just not the time to provide feedback on everything. And... Um, on occasion, there might be a sort of a, a point of contact on every bid. So somebody that was sort of managing the technical, you know, answering all the FAQs and all that sort of stuff. A sort of a very gentle, soft email to that person sometimes can solicit the feedback, but usually it's so general because they're not the decision maker that it's kind of pointless. I think... Um, I've often got really good feedback from colleagues before submitting project bids and after unsuccessful ones to sort of see with a fresh pair. It's amazing what a fresh pair of eyes can see the gaps are and that you sort of, and, and it's the same with your PhD. It's no different in that way. You know, you're, you're like this putting a PhD or a project bid together, but you just don't have that sort of full holistic view of something that a fresh pair of eyes can bring. So again, in your putting together bids, it's important to have that, you know, time and space and have that trusted relationships with other people that they'll give you honest feedback. But yeah, absence of that, I think, you know, I mean, for the likes of myself, I'm always happy to look at bids for other people in their generation and afterwards to see like, here's where I think your real value is as a research bid. Zone in on this. This is a little bit samey. Here's the gap. And um, because that's really the only way you learn. That's the sort of learning environment I had as a postdoc. So um, I'm always happy to help anybody uh, who's talking about going for these things. I think if, if this academic job for me failed, I, I would want to be a grant writer, like a professional grant writer. Oh, wow. We know where to go now. <laughs> but, okay. But so, can I ask get... you a question, Enrico? For very, yeah. very um, it just came to my mind. Like you have given us all these great tips, uh, Paul. Like uh, do this, avoid that, and put this uh, application together. What happens if we follow all these steps and uh, maybe consult you as well before submitting, and then we keep failing in getting the funding? What's next? How? What are the alternatives? What can we do in this case? We've done all what we could, but still we're not getting it. How do you? approach this as an um, expert in the field well you might be failing for different reasons so i know we failed on bids before that weren't ready for that time so we have to do more research publish more and basically set an agenda to say this is research that needs to be done right that we can mm -hmm. cite our old work and then cite the citations of our work to say, look, this is something that's kind of forming here and you need to be at the forefront of funding it. So some of it is about sort of creating a research agenda 
and a momentum that they'd be silly not to fund it. Because often that's, that's a problem, right? Because funders and program managers, they have a duty to make sure that the work is done and that it will have some value at the end. So if you're proposing ideas that are completely new and sort of, you know, way out there, they might be more conservative in their decision-making. And that again goes back to the sort of culture in different research funders. So some of it might mean you need to go do more unfunded work to sort of make that a necessity, make the funded work a necessity. Sometimes you might not be getting funded because your idea isn't very good. Uh, and then it's back to the drawing board. Um, or you're too expensive and you are budgeting for things that might not necessarily be needed. And so you might, you know, there might be a lot of fat on your proposal that you need to trim off. And, you know, as a reviewer for different research councils, I've seen bids come in that I think we would do that at UCL for 50 grand and you're asking for 800 grand. Like, you know, you're clearly going to do something else with those postdocs that is not going to be badged by this funding agency. So it's about going back to the basics and, and trying to sort of pick apart. And I think one of the best things you can do is look at successful grant bids to see how they, um, how they market themselves and how they sort of are punchily written, you know, like they smack people over the head to say, this has to be done, right? The enthusiasm of the idea jumps off the page. And, you know, as an employer, that's what I'm looking for as well, because I think, you know, if people are short on research methods training, we can get them training. If their writing isn't that good, we can get them writing skills. If they're not enthusiastic, there's very little I can do to inject enthusiasm into them. But if they're like bouncing around with ideas, that's the sort of culture that I would want in my team. And it's the sort of thing that we like to see. You can have the best research idea proposal, but if it's not written well or punchy and doesn't grab people's attention, no chance. And so, that's why we have this session. Like if, if you fail, don't lose interest. Like keep trying, show your interest. The only failure with research grants is having something that you could have submitted but didn't for because you didn't get the systems in place, you were too lazy, you felt you had too much on. That's the failure. Putting the bid in and getting under review, that's a success. Mm. If you get the funding then, that's the roll of the dice. Paul, um, sorry, I am the one uh, today taking a bit of the timings, uh, keeping track, but we need to move as it's 5-2, so we might slightly late but we'd rather not we might need a second session with paul about uh, yeah that. we can definitely have a second session if you're if you're happy to come back yes um, but yeah given what you told us that was amazing what would you say free takeaway lessons bullet points straight sharp in our heads uh, to remain about do's and don't that are crucial about uh trying securing grants so first of all, you, you need a, an, an idea that you can sell to other people, that you know that there's going to be an audience for, right? That, that it's going to sort of make somebody's job easier by shining new knowledge, new methods, new findings on, right? So especially we would say that JDI, right? You need ideas, plus it needs to have sort of some sort of impact orientation towards it, right? Second one, which we haven't really touched on is you need to sort of know if, if it's a bid you're going for where the topic or the subject is set by the funder. So if they're saying we're going to fund something on domestic abuse, know where that came from. Behind that call is a set of policies and procedures and government documents that would have outlined why this call has come to fruition. So know the provenance of those calls. And once you know that, you'll be able to sort of tailor your ideas to know how to sell it because you know where the problems come from. And then the other one is be organized. Half mm. of the battle is just organization. You mean organized in terms of knowing the deadlines, the submissions, preparing for it, having so it reviewed? There's deadlines, there's your budget guys' deadlines, there's the 
Uh, if you've got partners, you'll need to set them deadlines. They'll need to get your CVs in. Everything organized almost to the sort of the week you need different things rolling in and to be in place. And, you know, I've seen bids where the project criteria said, send us 15 pages and they send them 15 and a half pages and they get rejected. Wow. Right. So organization is important. You know, when I did the ERC bid, got through the one that was successful, got through phase two, you go to phase three where you have to do an interview for the panel and they give you 10 minutes to present five years of your plans. And if you go on to 10 minutes and two seconds, an alarm starts going off and you can't talk anymore. So you needed to be able to have everything boom, punchy in that 10 minutes. So it's all about organization. Wow. That's even worse than uh, uh, the presentations uh, in Global Security Challenges back in the years <laughs> in our department. Yep. Amazing. So these are three amazing lessons. And actually, we can even go more in the details in another session with you about the fundings, if you're happy with it. Uh, because I would suggest what happens after getting the funding to avoid, avoid the yeah. failures after but getting also, it. Also, all those things that we haven't talked about at the moment, there are some details like securing proper um, letters of support, for instance. What counts in that? Uh, there's a lot of aspects of funding that we haven't touched that actually Paul could probably explain as amazing things. And what happens after as well is very important. Um, I want to thank you, Paul. That was uh, a really, really interesting uh, session about this topic, as uh, many of us think about it all the time, but don't really know what to do. Uh, I would like to thank our audience. Please spread the word. Uh, we are still trying to look for people. We have had one person that uh, told us interest for March, but we are looking for people all the time. And uh, we are interested in your failures, your messed up moments. Thanks a lot for being here. And as usual, Sumeya, you have been great. As a thank you. We're honored I'm to have honored you as to well. And uh, thank you, Paul, again. Uh, this was really a fruitful session. I would, I would really would like to, for us to arrange for a second session with Paul. Um, he's like um, a mine of funding knowledge and we want to know it all. So yeah, we're interested uh, in failures. As uh, mentioned, we want to know your messed up moments. So please contact us if you have any messed up moment you'd like us to uh, know about and share with us the knowledge. Thank you for joining us today. And I'll go celebrate my birthday now. See ya. <laughs> See you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you, David. <laughs> this has been the Messed Up series. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of the series at uclsecretsociety.org slash messed up.